Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. You're listening to Radio Rounds, a talk show created and hosted by medical students and physicians in training, where today's stories are told by tomorrow's doctors. Coming up on today's episode, we sit down with fourth-year medical student and American Medical Association trustee, Dr. Sam McKenzie, as he shares his thoughts on a recent, highly anticipated report submitted by the Institute of Medicine on their vision for the future of residency training in America. Uh, When the report was released, like most people I'd imagine, I, I went straight to the recommendations. And I don't think it would be inaccurate to say that my first reaction was one of surprise. Uh, that the commission didn't acknowledge the fact that we've got a real physician workforce issue on our hands in the coming years. And this isn't to detract from the many good recommendations that the IOM put forward, but the fact is we've got you know, a generation of baby boomer doctors who are retiring and, and becoming more high-utilization patients themselves, and then you've got the millions of Americans who have health insurance now thanks to the Affordable Care Act over 10 million on the exchanges, uh, 6 million through Medicaid and CHIP, and about 3 million younger people who have been able to stay on their parents' plans. So by the time we're done, uh, the numbers are expected to be, you know, closer to 40 million new Americans with with insurance. Uh, So that coverage, you know, doesn't mean much if you have to wait six months to see a doctor. More from our candid conversation about what it will take to train an adequate, highly competent and compassionate physician workforce for millions of needy patients, right now on Radio Rounds. Welcome back to Radio Rounds, everyone. I'm John Corker. We're back with the first installment in our upcoming three-part series exploring the meaning and potential impact of a recent landmark report published by the Institute of Medicine's Committee on the Governance and Financing of Graduate Medical Education. As a bit of background, the Institute of Medicine is an independent, nonprofit organization that works outside of government to provide unbiased and authoritative advice to decision-makers and the public. According to their website, the IOM, quote, asks and answers the nation's most pressing questions about health and health care, end quote. In 2012, recognizing an impending crisis in access to health care across the country, the IOM commissioned a special committee to examine how physicians are trained during their three to seven years between medical school graduation and independent practice, called residency. A few weeks ago, after two long years, the IOM committee finally published the recommendations for an improved, more sustainable GME program. These recommendations have been highly controversial, including, but not limited to, calling for a freeze and 10-year phase-out of federal support for GME, increased accountability and transparency measures for this support, and the creation of two new federal entities to oversee the governance and financing of GME going forward. Today, we begin our exploration of this report and its future implications by speaking with Dr. Sam McKenzie, a fourth-year medical student at Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Having already completed his Ph.D. in neuroscience, Dr. McKenzie also serves on the Board of Trustees of the American Medical Association, the largest representative organization of physicians and their patients in the country, and an influential force that is considered in most decision-making circles to represent the voice of medicine. 
Dr. McKenzie is in the process of applying to residency programs in child neurology, a specialty cited as among the most in need of a larger national workforce. I started off the interview by asking Dr. McKenzie to recount his initial thoughts upon reading this report for the first time. Sam, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, John. Big Radio Rounds fan. Starting out here, what were some of your initial thoughts upon reading this much-anticipated IOM report? Yeah, well, let's start out with the fact that a lot of us have been eagerly waiting for the IOM report for a very long time. Uh, The Commission has been working on it for a number of years and received testimony from a multitude of stakeholders, the AMA included. So given that anticipation, uh, when the report was released... Like most people, I'd imagine, I I went straight to the recommendations, and I don't think it would be inaccurate to say that my first reaction was one of surprise, uh, that the commission didn't acknowledge the fact that we've got a real physician workforce issue on our hands in the coming years. And this isn't to detract from the many good recommendations that the IOM put forward, but the fact is we've got, you know, a generation of baby boomer doctors who are retiring and and becoming more high-utilization patients themselves And then you've got the millions of Americans who have health insurance now, thanks to the Affordable Care Act, over 10 million on the exchanges, uh, 6 million through Medicaid and CHIP, and about 3 million younger people who have been able to stay on their parents' plans. So by the time we're done, uh, the numbers are expected to be, you know, closer to 40 million new Americans with with insurance. Uh, So that coverage, you know, doesn't mean much if you have to wait six months to see a doctor. And a lot of workforce experts are predicting a shortfall of between 50,000 to 90,000 doctors, half of which fall into primary care and the other half into specialties by by 2020. And obviously, certain areas have more acute needs, telling us that maldistribution is part of the problem too. But getting back to the report, uh, the commission did a nice job in a lot of areas, but I think the big thing they missed was the fact that we've got to be training more doctors, and and we're not going to do that just by putting more people through medical school. These MD and DO graduates need a place to train in residency. Uh, One other thing I'll mention is that the IOM report really just took on Medicare funding in in there. And uh, Medicare is is certainly a dominant player, Um, but I was hoping to see a little bit more discussion on some of the other payers, uh, like states, the VA, the GME program that funds standalone children's hospital. You know, the AMA has been an advocate for an all-payer system for many years, because we just don't think it's a good idea to have such an important system relying on a single funding source. You mentioned that there were some good things about the recommendations in the report. What are some of those positive things that came out of the report? One of the things that the IOM report mentioned uh, was the need to be more creative about how and where we're training our residents. And on that issue of where residents of the future will be training, you know, there's, there's one big piece of the current equation that people often miss, and that's that funding of GME isn't the whole problem. Uh, there have been some pretty unfortunate barriers to expansion thanks to a federal cap that we have in place. Essentially, uh, the way the rules are set up now under Medicare, which is the single largest funding stream for GME, if a new system, let's say a community hospital uh, that didn't have any residents previously wanted to start a residency program, they'd need to grow it at a pretty quick rate before the Medicare cap went in place after five years. Um, so with few exceptions after that point, they wouldn't be able to grow anymore. Uh, the AOMA and, and multiple other groups have been trying to get this cap listed for years since it's a really big deterrent to getting new residency programs in some of these underserved areas. 
the cap very simply exacerbates the physician uh, maldistribution in this country, which the IOM report certainly recognized. One of the things that they called for was a little bit more streamlined uh, function in terms of how we fund GME. They did uh, call for adding new agencies, but I think in terms of uh, getting rid of and or moving on from the current system of direct medical and indirect medical education, kind of simplifying that, making more transparent accounting process, uh, some of those recommendations I think have some merit. I can tell you that the AMA is in agreement with the concept of pilot programs that will increase the number of residency positions and the accountability of GME programs for quality outcomes. Um, in fact, our House of Delegates voted yes on expressly these issues at our annual meeting in June. Accurately defining and measuring quality, though, especially in a training environment, is another one of those things that's easier said than done. Uh, it's important to emphasize that these pilot programs absolutely cannot come at the expense of existing programs also, uh, given that we need all the slots that we've got currently. One thing that was very controversial was an article written by Dr. Hugh Reinhardt a few weeks ago for the New York Times, really challenging the notion uh, that the work of resident physicians and their training is a public good. Uh, there are many who believe that it is a public good, but Dr. Reinhardt is a very uh, well-respected economist who says that from an economist perspective, this resident training and resident the work that resident physicians do does not constitute a public good. What are your thoughts on that? Does GME and the work of residents constitute a public or, at the very least, a social good? Well, you're right that uh, Dr. Reinhardt is a pretty well-respected healthcare economist. And my family, my dad is the economist, not me, and I'll, uh, I'll do my best to take a crack <laughs> at the question. Um, so my understanding, his argument was that uh, physicians own their educations as a private good, and as such, it doesn't make sense for the government to subsidize them. Uh, what strikes me first about this argument is how much the public subsidizes education of all forms, from pre-K to higher ed. And I think that there are good reasons for doing so at all levels. Not least among them is a more diverse workforce that doesn't boil down to who has the means to pay for those educations. Uh, another issue I have, I guess, boils down to the accounting. About 6% of the country's hospitals are teaching hospitals. And guess how much charity care is provided by teaching hospitals? 40%. And that equates to about $8.4 billion. So I'll, I'll put in a quick plug here. If, if your listeners are interested, they can go to savegme.org to see some other surprising numbers like that one. Um, my point is that the GME dollars don't just go to resident salaries, which, by the way, come out to about $13 an hour. They pay for research, teaching, direct patient care that would otherwise go uncompensated for the hospital. So we could call it a name that's not under the label of IME or indirect medical education, but it doesn't change the fact that that's a lot of where the subsidy goes. Well, and you've spent a lot of time uh, getting your Ph.D. degree, but you've also spent uh, just as much, if not more, time working towards your M.D. degree, ostensibly with the hope of, of providing care for patients. And as I mentioned in your bio at the beginning of the show, you're hoping to go into pediatric neurology, which is uh, a shortage area in, in, in this country. Uh, tell me a little bit about your interest in pediatric neurology and how it might impact your career going forward if you weren't able to provide that direct patient care in such an area of high need. Uh, so child neurology for me, it's, it's very appealing in that it's an academic specialty um, having the research background, I think it's one that kind of requires us to think about how we're uh, developing new treatment 
paradigms for, for a lot of these neurologically complex children. So I think for me, it's, it's a field that marries my research interests with um, the idea of providing coordinated care for a pretty complex uh, population of patients. That said, you know, if you're just doing the research, I think you are missing a pretty vital uh, context in terms of interacting with patients and families and really figuring out what their needs are. Um, and likewise, if you are just providing the patient care, we're really not moving the needle on on um, some of this, some of these new treatments that uh, we so desperately need in the field. Uh, so, so that kind of formed my my choice for the for the field, and and I'm hoping to uh, certainly continue patient care in the future, given that at my institution the the waiting time just to see one of these uh, few attending physicians that we have in child neurology is between four and six months. That's really hard to imagine uh, having to wait four to six months, especially as a as a child for needed care. Uh, obviously, there's you know you mentioned before a, phys- a national physician shortage and geographic maldistribution, uh, and we have this report from the IOM. We have these recommendations that may or may not be uh, brought to fruition over the next couple of years. Any way you slice it, it's clearly a challenging time for medicine and for residents. What advice, Sam, do you have from your medical student colleagues that may come after you? Uh, what should they expect, and how can they maximize their chances of fulfilling their dreams of becoming a doctor? So in, in very practical terms, there's the obvious advice of excelling in your courses and on your board exams. Um, beyond that, you know, I think it's important that students keep their eye on the ball when it comes to patient care. You certainly don't need to go out of your way on your clerkships to impress people if your focus is keeping your patients cared for to the best of your ability. Uh, Second, I would say it's important to be realistic about where you stack up compared to the various specialties out there. And if you're reaching for something that might not be in the cards for you, have a backup plan in place. Uh, Finally, uh, and probably most importantly, medical school requires a lot of focus. And I think it can be difficult for students to get their heads out of their books sometimes and participate in some of these bigger picture processes of change uh, going on around them. Certainly, healthcare reform comes to mind, but in the more immediate future, students really need to be active on the subject of graduate medical education. And I'll say that the AMA has been working with Congress to pass federal legislation for years. There's a bill out there now that I'd urge everyone listening to call their congressperson about. It's H.R. 4282, sponsored by uh, Kathy Castor from Florida, called the Creating Access to Residency Education Act of 2014, or the CARE Act. Uh, On the state level, too, we're trying to push for more residency positions in areas of need, knowing that about 50% of doctors will stay on to practice close to where they trained. And I'll make one final pitch here, if I may, John, and that's for listeners to join the AMA and their state medical societies. If we're not going to fight for better health care in this country, others are going to attempt to do it for us without the context that practicing medicine provides. So we really have to be engaged. A worthy call to action indeed. Sam, thanks very much. No problem. Thanks for having me, John. That was fourth-year medical student and AMA trustee, Dr. Sam McKenzie. For more information on the IOM and a complete rundown of their report on GME, please visit our website, www.radiorounds.org where we'll include a direct link to the appropriate portion of the Institute of Medicine website. 
Join us in the coming weeks for parts two and three of this series as we speak with Dr. Atul Grover, Chief Public Policy Officer at the American Association of Medical Colleges, as well as Dr. Amitabh Chandra, an economist and Director of Health Policy Research at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Dr. Chandra served as a member of the IOM's Committee on the Governance and Financing of GME, as well as a primary author of their report. In the meantime, remember that you can download podcasts of all past episodes. Just search the iTunes store for Radio Rounds or visit www.radiorounds.org. You can also contact our team via email, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. All of that information at radiorounds.org. Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. Sponsored by the American Medical Association. Visit us at medplusadvantage.com. AMA Insurance is pleased to introduce an individual disability insurance plan called Essentials for MedPlus Advantage participants. Through this plan, eligible graduating medical students have a special one-time opportunity to apply for high-quality individual disability insurance with no intrusive or time-consuming medical exams and only a few basic questions, and with discounted premiums. Apply now as the enrollment period ends soon. Of course, please remember that the views and opinions expressed on Radio Rounds are not representative of the views and opinions of the partners of Radio Rounds. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone, and have a great week. For our entire staff here at Radio Rounds, I'm John Corker, and one day, I'll be your doctor.